so many great moments in this Marty Friedman clinic you're about to hear. Let me just say, this is our first bonus episode, No Guitar Is Safe, episode 83. As per usual, last week we plugged in with our guest, which was Marty Friedman, and he had his awesome Jackson signature model plugged in, playing some vicious stuff and also some very beautiful melodic stuff. Love that guitar. It has actually a really cool purple mirror top to it. And I put a little video of it if you want to see Marty in that interview backstage there at Musicians Institute at the new Live House Room. Awesome, immaculate soundstage. I put that little video on No Guitar Safe Facebook page and also on my Twitter and my Instagram, which are both Jude underscore gold. But today, well, we're going to go visit the second half of that day because we did that interview, you know, it was like a half hour, but I think it was a banging half hour, man. It was popping. There's a lot of cool stuff in that interview, but we were on a schedule because immediately someone walked in with a quick sandwich and five minutes later, Marty was on stage to do this awesome clinic you're about to hear. Now, just to back up a second, Marty has a new album out that you got to know about. It's called One Bad MF Live. That's why he was in town from Japan. know man he's a full-time rock star all over planet earth but he's also a part-time tv star in japan what a crazy life he's carved out for himself and students want to know how he did it and that's what he talks about in this clinic everything from how does he build his solos are backing tracks the devil and avoiding image fails good stuff playing with jason becker oh by the way jason becker has a new album coming out december 7th and it features Marty Friedman amongst many other players. I'm proud to say I'm on one and a half songs. I say half, but I played a little rhythm guitar on a song as well. Played an acoustic solo on a song straight out of Jason's brain. I was Jason's fingers. What an honor to be Jason's fingers and try to play the solo that he had in his head. Anyhow, I digress. That album is called Triumphant Hearts. Jason Becker, Marty Friedman's on it, a bunch of other players. You can check it out at jasonbecker.com. You can even pre-order that record. It's out December 7th. So anyway, yeah, we're going to head over and I'm going to give you this clinic. I thought it came out great. I mean, sorry for like the crowd noises and the background noises here and there. Generally, it's a pretty clean recording. I just put the recorder on a chair, but you can hear people moving around in their chairs and stuff. But this is real, man. This podcast, every time we parachute in somewhere, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, I parachuted into this clinic amongst 40 or 50 guitar students. There's a lot of great moments in this thing. And you know what? I'm going to actually punch in and kind of tell you what some of the people are asking. Because the people are sometimes far away from my Zoom recorder. Yes, that was a plug. And um, they're a little bit far away. You can't always hear what they're saying. So I will punch in in those instances with the question, tell you what they're asking. I hope you enjoy this. And you know what? You can see Marty Freeman and his amazing band. At some point in here, he tells you about his amazing band. But trust me, I saw them at the Viper Room doing a little promo show for the album, One Bad MF Live. And they are every bit as amazing as he describes them to be. Check them out for yourself. The show is coming somewhere near you if you live in America in January, February. January 23rd starts off in San Diego, and then they weave their way across the country. Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, all kinds of stuff. Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana. I know I'm leaving stuff, some stuff out, but I'm just kind of summarizing for you. Ending up like through Pittsburgh, including like Philly, 
heading to Brooklyn, New York, New Jersey. I think the thing culminates with a show in Baltimore, Maryland, February 24th. You can learn more about that on MartyFriedman.com. Check out those dates and uh, let's head right over to Musicians Institute's brand new room, the newest, coolest room in Hollywood. I'm not just, this is not a plug. I'm just saying this is great that this thing exists and uh, people are investing in live music. Without further ado, let's fire up this old copter and head over to Hollywood. Keep it alive to you, 95 people. Maybe 105. First question is a student asking Marty for tips on how to develop a signature identifiable style, such as the one that he hears in Marty's playing. I think everybody winds up sounding like themselves at some period of time. I think the more you do original music, your own music, it automatically makes you sound like yourself eventually. But to kind of jumpstart that, you might want to try to find music that you enjoy that is not the norm you know everybody likes the great guitar players and and all of the super instrumental players and the guys who are really great that they're fantastic but if you kind of search into some kind of weird places just kind of get into a weird place on the internet or something and if you find something i don't know indonesian flute solos or something that appeals to you can't just be some random thing you know it appeals to you then you kind of learn that and incorporate that into your playing. And you do that over a long period of time, and next thing you know, you'll sound a little bit more like yourself and not like everybody else who uh, is influenced by great musicians. So there's great musicians everywhere, so if you find kind of little out-of-the-way guys, you'll speed that up a little bit. Other questions? Here, a student asks, how do you write your solos? They have so much feel. Do you improvise them, or is there more to it than that? Uh, thank you very much. Um, most of the time, what I'm playing is mel. Did you finish your question? Yeah. Uh, uh, what I'm playing is melodies, and if you have a melody, it really becomes easier to put your feeling and stamp on it. If you're kind of just uh, working out parts that aren't necessarily melodies, you kind of just have to play the part correctly, you know what I mean? I hear melodies first, and, and I try to write a song around the melodies. Yeah, so I li- write a lot of melodies, and so when um, I try to play with feeling, but what is feeling, so to speak? If you were to uh, define feeling, it's making the decision to play a little bit later, or a little bit earlier, or a little bit slower, or a little bit faster, or a little bit harder, a little bit softer, all those little decisions that you have to make on every single note, that equals feeling. You know, people say, he plays with technique, he plays with feeling. Both of those words are complete bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's not real. I mean, uh, interpretation is real. So you give five guys the same melody, he's going to play it this way, she plays it this way, she plays Everybody has their own stamp on it. And however you decide, I think I'm going to play it faster, or I'm going to play with more distortion, or I'm going to play acoustically, or I'm going to play on a violin with this kind of playing. Those are the decisions that um, kind of equal feeling in the listeners, in the listeners' ears. How do you write a strong melody? A strong melody. Good question. I'm constantly writing melodies all the time, and I keep them, either write, or write them down or put them in a phone or anywhere to keep them. And How do you know it's strong when you're working on it for weeks, months, years even, and it feels like it's a real theme? You know, you don't think, well, this kind of sucks. You know, you have to be so honest, brutally honest with yourself. I mean, just so you know, about 90% of what I do, I absolutely can't stand. I just can't even listen to it. It's just horrible to me. But that 10%, I work on that and I 
kind of hone it into what I think it should be, but the majority of the stuff, I'm constantly writing stuff. And most of it, it just sucks. It's just crap. Um, I don't like it. But you have to do that. Nobody's going to sit down and pick up a guitar or any instrument. It's going to be fucking godlike all the time. It's not going to happen. You have to, like, fail 90% of the time and realize when you're doing something cool, okay, I'm onto something now. Uh, I like this melody. I like this rhythm. I like this motif. You have to be a judge of what you're writing. What does your home writing rig actually look like? Because, I mean, a lot of things can sound fantastic when you have all these amps and you have so much vibe and feeling going on, but what is your home rig? Like, what do you write on that still inspires you? I never get inspired by a tone like that. You make a very good point. Most of my stuff is on an iPhone. <laughs> I'm either just humming into it or playing it acoustically. Um, this is a great point. If you have like fantastic tone, you play anything, it sounds great. It means nothing, it means nothing. It has to work without knowing what it's gonna sound like when you've got all the great tone and the great processing and great gear. And um, for the most part, I just write on my iPhone or on this thing and then when I think it's worth actually pursuing, I'll put it into GarageBand. The tone still totally blows sucks. I do demos for even more than a year before I even decide a song is worth recording. Um, but your point is very good and you should not need great sound or great gear to be inspired. Of course, great gear will inspire you. If you have a great sound, you're going to play nice things. That's all true. And it's, it's very good, but you have to develop uh, a part of you inside that does not um, depend on having great tone and great surroundings to create music. I mean, if you have a melody, does it, the melody's a melody. It's not a sound, it's, it's, it's a sequence of notes or whatever. So that, you could just talk it into a phone. Very, very good point that uh, all of us learn the hard way. When I was a kid, you know, I went into the studio and, uh, and I wrote something, and I'm like, this is the best thing ever, I can't believe it. And it's not, it's not any good. You think have to be good before you put all the, all the processing on it. You kind of live and learn. Where, where did you get your guitar? It's beautiful, just like you. Ah, uh, thank, oh my God, this is great. Girls at these things, I love it. I love it. Um, my guitar is, all these actually, are Jackson Marty Friedman models. They're from Jackson, and uh, you can get them. I think uh, that black one right there is the standard one. That's the prototype, but they look like that. How do you get the other two guitars? Uh, you can, I guess you can order custom, whatever kind of custom colors and paint jobs and that kind of thing. And actually, he spilled the beans on it, but I think Paul Stanley from KISS has a black cracked mirror guitar like that. And I saw that, and I'm like, i got to have that. And this one here is just, this is just, Brand new, a first time I've seen it today. And Jackson is uh, just a world-class maker of guitars. Thank you for asking. Okay. What's your thought process behind structuring a song? Uh, like I said before, um, if I have a strong melody, I'll record that, just the melody. And then I'll see what kind of chords I can play over it. And then I'll see what kind of rhythms I can play over it. Then once I have a, that melody and the motif, kind of direction I want to go with it, hopefully it will automatically lead me to a next part. I'll hear it. If not, I'll just leave the project for a while and come back later. But hopefully the parts connect to each other, but it takes a lot of time and living with it. Sometimes you have just one part and you play it in your headphones and you go jogging or you do anything other than making music. That's when the ideas come. If you sit down with your instrument, it, sometimes it's not the best I get so many ideas in the shower, you know, for some reason, whenever I don't have an instrument, it's when the ideas come. Other question? Here a student asks, when you wake up every day, what do you play? This is it. I just woke up before coming here. So, I wouldn't play um, unless there's something to play. Like if I was uh, working on something, I would work on that. And, or for this, um, actually I came in to do the sound check and I played that kind of mellow ballad, because I've never played that in America before. I played it like once in Japan, so I ran over that. 
to make sure I played it. Even still then, I fucked it up, so. I just work on whatever is gonna happen that day, if that. Usually there's time, like a sound check or a rehearsal, when time is designated to do things, but I very rarely, if ever, noodle around. Very rarely. Maybe if I haven't played a guitar in a while, I might do that. Here, a student points out that in Marty's early work, there's a Persian influence, then he moves to Japan, and there's a Japanese influence, and things get bigger and bigger. What's next, Marty? What's your next big influence? Good question. Um, he said my earlier stuff had a lot of Persian influence, and now is Japanese. And It's not really in an order so much, but if I hear something, anything, anywhere that I'm interested in, I don't know how to do, it kind of goes back to your question. I will seek that out. Like my friend Jude back there is... Uh, he did an interview with me and he was playing guitar and he played me some wicked licks of his and I said, dude, show me that. And he showed it to me and because it was something that I knew I'd be interested in. So the same thing goes, I remember when I first got into Persian music, I was in a taxi. Taxi driver was playing this weird music. It was like so exotic. And I asked the guy, what is it? He says, here, I'll give you the cassette. So he gives me the cassette and I'm like, this is it. I couldn't read a single letter on it. And it had all these unique phrases and rhythm, rhythms. And no one else, none of my, they were all like playing Van Halen and stuff. No one else had this Persian tape that I didn't even know what the name was. But there was just, a, just phrases for days in there. And so I did that like with many different countries. I'd find parts of their music that appealed to me. And still, even now, there's so many things left to learn. It's just insane. There's, it's never-ending. So anytime I'm in a foreign country, restaurant... I used to do it in Indian restaurants all the time because they're like all kinds of really interesting music. That's what it is. It's not really any kind of smartness at all. It's just uh, I really appreciate foreign music. It's so different from each other. All right, so uh, we'll get some more questions later because I, I just, usually I just take questions... And that's all cool, but I was thinking this morning that um, it would be more valuable, hopefully, if I could give you some opinions. You, all of y'all are in students, right? In this MI, correct? And um, there are so many great teachers and musicians in this school that can teach you the musical stuff better than I could, and and you should use those resources. I would like to say a couple things that I think that would have helped me had I been a student or at your point in your musical journey, so to speak. So I'm just going to blurt all this stuff out and then uh, we'll take a couple more questions at the end. But uh, I think that, that I owe it to, first of all, MI because they've had me here since I was homeless, pretty much. And, and I think that you guys deserve to know some non-musical stuff. Well, it's musical, but um, first thing, okay, I know that a lot of people out there are using these backing tracks on YouTube and on the internet. Any of you, you guys use that out here? Use the backing tracks? Now, these backing tracks, I think they are the devil. <laughs> They're probably fun to use at some times and to move your fingers and depending on where you are in your guitar, but I think they should be approached with very, very much caution and probably not used almost at all. And I'll explain to you why. These backing tracks are made, you play one note and you sound great. Play a couple notes, you play a scale, you sound great. You follow two chords, you sound great. This is not giving you what you need to do what you guys want to do as musicians. It's not. It's giving you a false, very false sense of what your improvement is and what your abilities are. And the reason why I say this is because what you should be doing is finding people to be your backing tracks and creating parts for them to play so you know exactly what makes up the backing track to make you sound the best you possibly can. The only thing that these backing tracks are good for are the people who are making these backing tracks. I really applaud them because uh, I guess there's YouTube monetization from that type of thing, and it's a lot of fun. Let, let's face it, these things are a lot of fun, but 
I guarantee you, if you really make them a big part of your musicality, you will forever be a hobbyist musician. And that's what they're basically for. So you got guys who have regular jobs, they come home and they want to relax to somebody playing a blues progression for them, it sounds great, and they can jam over it, and it's fun, I get it. It's a big stress release, it, it just makes you feel good, it's like, I'm awesome. But that's not what you guys are here for. You guys are here because you want to be musicians in, in your life, I assume. But that's who I'm addressing with this. If you're a hobbyist, I think the backing tracks are the best thing in the world. It's, it's exactly like karaoke. You enjoy yourself, you have a great backing band. It's fantastic. What your goal is, is you have to understand everything under what makes you sound good. Let me give you an example. And this stuff I'm saying, I'm just kind of winging it, so it's gonna, it might sound completely ridiculous, but I just, I just thought of this, and I think this is valuable. Uh, especially for the kind of player I am, anyway. Like, you take a guy like David Gilmore, all right? Everybody looks at him like super respected, fantastic guitarist, top of the list, A-class guitar players. Now, why do you think that is? I mean, the guy, I've never heard the guy play outside of a regular pentatonic scale, have you? I could be wrong, I don't know their music. But that one famous song they have, they're like the Pink Floyd Freebird song with the long solo. Yes. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Why do you think he sounds so good? He's not even following the chords in that progression. He's playing in one key. One key. The chords are changing around him. He's playing with finesse. That's why. He's playing with finesse. And this backing track that he's created is what is making him sound so incredibly godlike. So he's created this fantastic wall of music all he has to do is play with finesse in a key of B minor and let the background give him this world of great sound. That's why. It's not just because of his playing, his fingering. Of course, he's a fantastic pro guitarist, he has finesse. But that exact playing without that wonderful background would, you know, it's going to sound terrible, but it would sound like anybody in a guitar center. It's just one very basic conceptual way of playing. But what is genius about it is the world that is created under that solo. Everybody follow what I'm saying here? I think this is super important. So if people are using these backing tracks and they're just playing their pentatonic scale over some three, four, ten chord progression that's on the internet, they're thinking, well, fuck, man, I don't sound a whole lot different from this Pink Floyd thing. What's up with that? The point is, you guys are all in here, you're gonna be expected to create this world. You might be backing up another instrumentalist. You might, you might not just be the solo guitar player. You've gotta understand you know, where the bass drum fits with the bass guitar and which fills work and, and how to put a drum fill in a certain place and how when to turn the chords around and how many turnarounds to do before it gets boring, and you're gonna to need to know when to do a key modulation and what chords go together nicely and who is good for this bass playing, who's good for this drumming, who's good for this sequencing. None of this stuff is stuff that you're gonna learn from soloing over these backing tracks, none of it. Actually, it's gonna be giving you reverse engineering there. So I would say people who are using it on a regular basis would probably want to tail off of that and create your own backing tracks, tracks that suit your specific style of playing and what you exactly want to do with your musicality. Does that make sense so far? And figure out how to do it yourself. I mean, it's really not that hard nowadays, especially. I mean, ideally, the idea is to find musicians around you that you like you like this guy for this, this guy for that, this guy for that, and really get to know the musicians and really get to know the actual music. I mean, my music, I'm playing along with these backing tracks, so to speak. These aren't really backing tracks. These are just the actual studio session tracks where I took my lead guitar off and I'm sitting here playing lead guitar for you. It's absolutely no big deal. But these backing tracks took me like a thousand times more effort and energy to create than me sitting here wanking like this over it. You see what I'm saying? So the top is not near, of course it's important, 
But at this stage where you guys are all at, it's so important to be able to create your own worlds that are not just playing on top of stuff. But I can't overemphasize this enough. So what I'm trying to say with this little message about that is um, use at your own peril because it will give you a very false sense of what you're going to need when you eventually go to like get a gig or you're eventually asked to create a piece of music or any other thing that people ask musicians to do. Nobody's going to say, okay, come in and blow solos over this. It's not going to happen at this stage. And, you know, eventually you're going to be asked to do a lot of things. So using a crutch like, you know, things that are already prepared for you uh, is, is kind of detrimental at this stage. So don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> I know they're fun as shit to play over, but I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend trying to make your own backing tracks. And if anything, do what those guys are doing, putting them up, putting them up online and make money off of it. I mean, that's an art in itself, and it's a very good musical exercise to do that. So that's my opinion on that. Okay, let me go to another question, another topic that um, someone brought up to me at a, a different clinic thing. At one point in time, uh, a long time ago, between uh, when Jakey Lee was in Ozzy, between when he was in Ozzy and when Zach was joining Ozzy, there was a period of time when they were looking for guitarists. And uh, I got a call from Sharon to come down to LA and do an audition. And I was like really super excited about it. Learned all the songs, you know, I forgot which songs there were, but there was about five songs. And this will all make sense to what you guys are doing because uh, hopefully we'll help you get to where you want to go. Um, so I was excited. I learned the songs. I prepared, learned everything, note for note, exactly what they wanted me to do. Come down to L.A. I get into the rehearsal hall, and the two guys in Ozzy's band were there. And it was, uh, it was a, I wish I remember the names. I think it's Randy Castillo, Castillo on drums and um, the tall, skinny bass player. Yeah, there you go, Phil Susan. Those two guys were there. Ozzy wasn't there, but um, I showed up in the rehearsal room, and these guys, it was like four in the afternoon, and these guys were like decked out to go partying on the strip, like full on LA hair metal regalia. Their hair was huge, and they had like, handcuffed belts and fucking sunglasses and it was the whole scene like right there and um i didn't think anything of it i thought wow that's kind of weird but um whatever it's a, re it's a rehearsal i just came down there in jeans and a t-shirt and i ran through the songs and they sounded absolutely fine to me and that was the end of it and i never heard anything back and uh, and i'm sure i'm com completely convinced that it was just an image fail on my part. Because when you're going to join another club, another unit, another world, really, it really doesn't matter how you play. It kind of matters if you fit in. You know, because there's great players who can play everything. Probably much of you guys could probably do exactly what I did at that audition. You know, there's a lot of great guitar players all over the place. So what it comes down to is, can we hang with this dude? And I was, you know, I was even, I was just jeans and a t-shirt. Didn't really have the lingo, you know, the glam metal type of lingo and any of that stuff. And there was no personal connection because we looked so different. And um, I kind of figured that's what it was. So what it would make sense to explain to you guys is that when I'm choosing members for my band, I kind of have a criteria. The criteria for my band anyway is the people can't look like they work in a bank in the daytime and then they play rock. You know, I'd rather have a guy look like a complete homeless person than someone who looks like an upstanding citizen, regardless of how great they play. This is for, just for me. But every single band and every single club has their own subliminal image things, image points and checklists that they're looking for. And this is something that really people tend to miss because people learning music really give their whole heart and soul to making the music, and I get that. But in the real world, I mean, people at the big gig levels, the big gig levels, you gotta think, the people who make the decisions, I can tell you, they could probably barely care less about the musicianship. They're thinking about who fits this slot in this band well enough to move this machine forward. So what I'm trying to say to you is if you have two 
say you're all guitar players. Two guitar players up for the same gig. Both play fantastic. One guy looks like he's in that band, one guy doesn't. Who do you think's gonna immediately get that gig? It's the guy who looks like he's gonna be in that band. So, what I'm trying to bring out to you is learning from my mistake is do as much research as you possibly can about the band or the artist you're gonna audition for. Really do research, and if you think there's anything you can do to look more like what you think they want you to look like, that is gonna really help you get an edge because you're in LA there's great musicians everywhere but musicians tend to have weak points when it comes to the realities of business and the realities of uh, politics other than musical politics and um, things like that can slip you know you get caught up oh I got this audition I'm gonna learn all this stuff I'm gonna play it left and right it's gonna be perfect they're gonna go crazy and then the guy who gets the gig can barely play but he fits in so this can all be fixed by just a little homework on your part and a little honesty with yourself. I mean, if you look like you're in a rap project and you're going for a death metal band, it doesn't matter if you can perfectly perform that stuff. For the most part, people are looking for people that can join that club. Now, this is not 100% sure. Sometimes people will go outside the box and take a risk or find something about the person that's unique that they like even though the image is different but I'm here to tell you and and this is not only from my personal experience but it's from a lot of my experience in Japan working with the total top list artists and seeing what happens in the decision-making levels it's really looks are so incredibly important and it doesn't mean good-looking or perfect kind of look or anything it means looks that fit within the image of what that artist is doing so you know it goes against everything that we're brought up you know music is the most important you're playing is the most important we're trying to become great musicians and this should go without saying this is definitely not everything it should go without saying that we are all trying to be the absolute best musicians and music is the most important thing in our lives this is true however in the real world, it's going to sting when someone who doesn't play as well as you gets the gig because they bring the fucking handcuffs to their rehearsal instead of wearing a uh, San Francisco 49ers t-shirt. It's going to sting. But in my case, Zach Wilde got the gig and he completely deserves it. A thousand times better for the gig than me. And it, it really makes a lot of sense. So if this kind of plants a bug in your ear that when when things start to get real it also take a little bit of pressure off your playing because a lot of guys really get hung up on their playing if you're the type of person that that artist or band wants your playing is going to get a lot of free passes because they're going to want to make you work they're going to want to believe in this guy like well the guy who worked in the bank he's got such great chops but you know I just love the way this dude looks man he just looks freaky man our band is freaky he's well, we can work him through the chops. We can work him through the way we like to play our music. Chops can be worked on. But uh, if you show up looking like you belong in their final project, that's all I got to say about that issue. So hopefully that'll stick with you guys. Any questions about that? Experiences? Here, a student asked Marty about the third element. He's already talked about music and he's talked about looks and image. What are the financial realities of being a musician? What are the ups and downs? Do you play with big bands, small bands? If you're doing music for money, forget about it. <laughs> you have to be doing music anyway. You know, I think you could ask anybody, even people who are ultra successful and making money. I think the, major of the majority of them would say they would be making music anyway, regardless of whether they made it or not. However, the silver lining is there are a lot of things within music to make money at. The big money is not at being the star the money is like these guys who make backing tracks for people they're making money people who do instructional things they're making money people who do technical work they're making money engineers are making money crew people are making money staff people are making money music people dealing with musical instruments are making money people who do those kind of really involved jobs with music can make money at it but your music, and this is super important, every one of you in here 
who has bought an instrument, and especially people who have decided to enroll in a school, there's no question that every single one of you in here has music inside of you. Those people on the street don't have music inside of them. But people who buy an instrument and buy a second instrument because they're starting to feel serious about it, these are people who have music. It's like a, like a light without getting too new agey because I hate that stuff. Um, it's like a light. There's music inside of you. Your music. And the more you learn about making music, the better you can express that and get your music out. And getting your music out is the most important thing. Now, your music might be the top of the chart someday. It will most likely not. It's like how many people enjoy your exact same record collection or CD collection or Spotify, whatever. Your music is not necessarily going to appeal to anyone, no matter how well it's played. But it's your music, and you've got to get it out. So a true artist, a true musician, their only goal is to get their personal music out. Their music. Get your music out and let the chips fall where they may. If people like it, that's fucking great. My music is what it is. It's my music, so if it's successful, great. It's not, what can I do? That's my music. You know, it's like my shirt or whatever. You know, somebody else is not gonna like my shirt. What can I do? It's all yours. So if you choose to pursue, pursue your music, you have to deal with the reality of how people respond to it. They like it, they love it, they hate it. It doesn't matter, it's yours. And that, that is the goal. There are other things you can do in music. While you keep your music on the side, you can prepare yourself to be a super session player or a band player playing a touring musician and things like that. That's a completely different journey. That means you have to be able to play so many different styles confidently with experience in many different things and a good head for what other people are doing and a good head for keeping your mouth shut when the person who's hiring you is asking you to do something that is not a part of your music. See what I'm saying? That's an art. That's a talent, and it's an art, and that's what you're getting paid for. You're not getting paid for your musical abilities. You're getting paid for how well you can create a world for the person who's paying you. Some people are great at it. Some people are not set up for that. Some great artists, for example, let's say Kurt Cobain. He's made billions of people happy with his music. But do you think he'd be the kind of guy who could take direction from, I don't know, who's a singer? Christina Aguilera. <laughs> She's going to say, well, I, this song is going to have kind of a funky R&B feel to it, and the turnaround is in 12-8, and then my vocal comes in, and after the, after the harmony part, you're going to come in and do a little solo. You think Kurt Cobain is the guy for that gig? It's not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? It's a completely different art. And... Um, if you stay in music long enough, hopefully your own music will develop as you possibly do these other gigs for money and gigs for work. There's a million other ways to make money out of music, but just your music, you gotta be like a super, super motivated person and, and be very lucky, very, very lucky. And I wouldn't even concern yourself with the results. Just concern yourself with, I have this music inside me, how badly do I want to get it out? How important is, is it to me to get this music at least done? Once it's done and it's something I'm totally a thousand percent proud of, then it's out of my hands. People like it, fucking great. But I cannot control what other people think of my music at all. I can't control it. You can have publicists push it. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. So my point with this is all of us here in this room definitely have it in there or else we wouldn't be here so if you can remember it's your music that matters what do i need to learn to make my music come out like myself that's the kind of stuff you want to learn from the staff here at this school that's the stuff you want to learn from all the other musicians you run into keep it focused on your music you know things that'll help you with your music if there's something that you love have one of these brilliant teachers explain parts of this music that you like. Why does this part always fucking sound so cool? What is cool about it? Well, he's going to say, well, this is why it's cool. Because you're playing 16th notes against 11-8 uh, pattern, and the 11-8 pattern turns around in a circle, and that's why it sounds interesting. Or whatever the real explanation is. 
or better yet, they'll show you how to do something like what turned you on in the first place. So that's pretty long-winded talking of mine. So if you have another question, good question though. Any other questions? This next question is actually a two-parter from yours truly. I'm asking Marty for tips on recording a live album in case anybody's ever thought of wanting to record their own live album. And also the second part I was asking him is if he gets at all self-conscious when suddenly there's a truck out there recording for this one-shot recording session. Doing a live album, the most important thing is having a good engineer and a good remote recording studio and uh, I had an engineer named Chris Rakestraw who did my Infernal record, which is uh, one of my best sounding records. Um, so you call a guy who knows how to engineer a record. And we did a massive sound check. Usually I barely even show up for sound check. You know, he's better than I am for knowing that kind of stuff. But that day I showed up and after he did his sound check and I listened to the remote tracks, made sure everybody sounded good. And then you just let it go and do the show. And, um, you know, you might think, oh, well, if we have a major accident, we might stop and do the song again because it's an album. But as, as soon as you hit the first note, guys, you, you guys who are in bands know what I'm talking about. As soon as you hit the first note, all nervousness and anything else that you might have been thinking about in the day is just, just gone. And yeah, so there was no real jitters or anything. But it's preparation. Good engineer, good recording equipment, and good solid sound check. And of course, good band. This next question has a student asking Marty about, like, how do you find opportunities? Like, say you just moved to Los Angeles to go to music school, like Musicians Institute. What's next? Like, he went to Japan, and he found a bunch of opportunities there. How do you find opportunities in a new place? Good question, and another great thing. People ask me, what do I do? Um, what's the best advice to do music? The first thing I say is get yourself to a real fucking city. <laughs> you know, I don't care if it sounds old-fashioned. It all funnels here. There's L.A., there's New York, there's Tokyo, London, Paris. You know, the Internet makes it a little bit easier, but everybody winds up in a real city. So you guys are in the real city now, and that is... You've already quadrupled your chance of meeting other people to work with so that's already a plus now here this is even a better atmosphere because you're in class they have classes where everybody's holding guitars right yeah they don't really know exactly what goes on but they're all holding guitars say you see a guy he's playing he looks pretty good you have no shame like dude you know remember in this class you played this thing can you show me that friend made guys like to hear compliments on their playing and guys like to show their stuff I've been doing that since I was like 14. I'd go to a gig, and after the gig, I'd go back and say, dude, that third song, that intro, you gotta show it to me. It's up with you, kid, man, but I'll show it to you. And, you know, once you start being in a situation where there's other people, that's like, that's your classroom, you know? And if you meet guys there, you can't be shy about asking people to show you stuff. Luckily, I've been able to play with so many great guitarists, and I can be annoying with how much shit I ask them. Some guys get a little bit uptight, you know. I don't remember what I played. You know? I improvised it. You know? I like to get information. And as you're doing that, you'll meet people, not only people, but people that you have an interest in. You don't just don't want to meet some random dude who you don't care about their playing. Really watch your surroundings and, and can't be shy. Can't be shy. And it's easy to approach somebody if you have one little thing in common. Like, I like the sound of your guitar. I like the way you follow that chord change or whatever the topic of your class is. Anything in common will give you just something to start with. Do it all the time. You had a question back there? This next student's asking about heavy metal. Marty, you've seen it for so many years. You've been doing it in so many scenarios for a long time. How do you think it's evolving and where is it headed now? Where's metal headed? The question is how how has heavy metal evolved? I think it um, it's still there, which is a fantastic thing that I love. It's not as mainstream as it was 10, 15 years ago, but it's there and it's better than ever. Um, people who listen to it have to seek it out. And I think when you have to seek out music, you have more of a deeper interest in music. And uh, like uh, my friends here who came to my other lecture, these kids are like eight years old. 
and this kid is like playing some of my music. He's talking about Slayer and like how many eight years old knows about that stuff? So like kids are smarter nowadays than they were when I was eight. I couldn't put a sentence together. People seek out things and they're more adventurous, so they're going to find more music than they did a long time ago. So they will find brilliant music and heavy metal. Where it's not, it's not on the radio now here in America anymore. Um, it exists, and it exists in a very high quality. And players are becoming more intelligent and also more tolerant of blending other music with it, which is kind of one of the things I love about Japan is music that is inherently very, very pop. They asked me to make this music more metal. They say, "Dude, come in and make this metal. We love metal. We're writing this pop. Inject some metal into this." And that's not something that has really caught on in America yet, unfortunately. And when it does, it's like so. There's a word in Japanese that's perfect. This is chutahampa, and that means half-assed. You know, in Japan, if there's a pop artist and they do one song on their album is heavy metal, it's going to be brutal, real heavy metal. But like I remember, like Britney Spears a long time ago had like a semi sort of rock. Kind of a little heavy metal song. I forgot what it was. I'm a huge Britney fan, just to tell you. But it was just so half-assed. It's like, is this what you think heavy metal is? This just sucks so bad. But it's a start, you know. Like heavy metal. I think the sound of heavy metal that can fit into so many more contexts. R&B, dance music, especially EDM. There's a place for heavy metal music to evolve. And、uh, I love being a part of that. I'm definitely not the metal or die old school nostalgic type at all. And as soon as we bring metal into you know, the 2020s, that sound of metal is going to get better and better. And I see it happening. Players are getting better and better, and more people of different backgrounds are coming to heavy metal events and things like this. And girls are showing up at this type of thing, which is. It's new, new to me. So、um, it, we're in a good period of time. How did you pick the current members of your touring band? Current members of my touring band. None of these members could do anything other than music. <laughs> They're complete maniacs.、Uh, let's see. The female bassist Kyoshi was、uh, recommended to me by someone I worked with in Japan, and at her audition. I was blown away because I'd never heard anyone play my songs as well as she does. In bass, there's so many guys slapping and doing fancy shit, and that's all good, and she can do that. But none of those guys can play straight eights like she can. Her straight eights are like such a thing of beauty, and when you're playing over it, when you're playing over solid straight eights, it it feels so good. It's like almost sexual. But when bassists break up these straight eights with their little frills and their little showcase things, it's kind of like a little worm crawling up your ass while you're playing. <laughs> when she plays, there's not a single worm crawling. It's just so solid. And then when you say, "Okay, now in this part, do something impressive," she'll rip your throat off with these impossible bass licks. For me, that's what I love in a bassist. Some people need this, need that. Everybody needs different things, but I just love her playing. And the drummer is Chargy, and he is like Tommy Lee on steroids. And my music, you know, there's not a lot of. It's not like Rush, you know. There's not a lot of、uh, real normal progressive playing in it. It's more straight ahead rock playing, but with an occasional, occasional thing that requires odd time knowledge and odd time feel. And when you play that odd time feel, it's got to sound like you're murdering it, not like you're playing at the Nam show, you know, with all your time signatures. So it's not—it's ne- never really any like Mahavishnu Orchestra kind of odd times, but you need to know your odd times. So he does that, but he looks like Tommy Lee when he's doing it. And the guitar player Jordan Ziff is、uh, what a treat he is. You know, I didn't have to teach him any of my music; he just learned it. Again, making it. Easy for the person who hired him. He just plays perfectly, and on his own playing is just wonderful. So、uh, when I say do take a solo, his solo is going to be something that I want to listen to, and that's how I chose these guys. They're all really something else. Other question?、Uh, um, yeah. How do you get your hair so majestically curly? <laughs>、uh, 
majestically a good word. Um, it, it, it's naturally curly, so naturally, um, uh, I really want straight hair. <laughs> so there's nothing to do about it. It just, it just is, but um, grass is greener on the other side. But uh, I once straightened it and uh, a long time ago, and it was, I was in Megadeth at the time, and it sucked because it, it grew right back out like in three days. So any photos from the shows during those three days... It was like, this half was all straight, and this half was all curly. And it looked so incredibly lame, and I was the new guy, and it just blew big time. But uh, maybe, yeah, it just sucked. But uh, it's just curly hair. Nothing to do about it. Uh, any other questions, comments, complaints? How was recording with Jason? How was it recording with Jason Becker? Yeah. Fantastic. Are you talking about now? Oh, now, I mean, you all know Jason's story. He's my complete inspiration for everything. Just knowing what he does to make his fantastic music makes me never be lazy about anything. Because uh, his music would be absolutely fantastic even if he didn't have the obstacles that he has. So I don't want anybody to go to his music and say, well, he's got these obstacles. That's what makes his music so great. No, forget about it. Because it's... It's just fantastic as it is. And when we email each other, it's completely like absolutely nothing was different from when we were kids together playing. It's like, dude, the 49ers suck. Oh, fuck you, the Redskins suck. <laughs> really like that type of thing. And it's very normal. And he will say, dude, I've got some ideas. Here, listen to this and see if any of this inspires you to want to play on it. And... You know, I'll send some stuff back, and he may have comments on it. And, I like this, or can you change that? And it's absolutely just as it was before. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with Jason Becker, please look him up. And he's got a new record coming out, and it's got, like, so many great musicians on it. Um, I'm just honored to be a little part of it and get that record and... Um, get that record and support Jason and, and enjoy what he's doing. Do you go in cycles when you're writing and practicing, or do you kind of mix it up? I never practice, so to speak, as just for practicing. I always practice for something. For example, I'm going to play a show on Sunday here at the Viper Room, and we're going to do some stuff that I've never played before live. So that, I'm going to look at and practice that and work on that piece of music. And I'm also working on another orchestra piece for when I get back to Japan. So I'm working out the parts for that. So I'm practicing those things. There's always projects going on. So I'm constantly playing. And if I'm not playing, I'm working on what's going to be played. So this for me, like playing this stuff in front of you is better for me or better for anybody really than practicing something. Which kind of leads me to the one other thing that I was going to kind of preach to you guys about great segue there practicing and playing so to answer your question quickly i'm playing all the time making music all the time so i'm always got a guitar in my hands everybody in school is learning how to better their instrument and stuff and learning how to play better and this is this is a given this goes without saying this is everybody it's your responsibility you have to take it for granted that you guys are the best musicians that you can be now, the most important thing, if I leave you with anything that could possibly help you in your career or journey of music, it's that the most important thing is you must create opportunities to play in front of other people. That's it. That's the whole thing right there. It's the whole thing. And this doesn't mean, this doesn't matter if you've been playing for a couple months or if you've been playing 20 years or more, or you've been playing forever like me, the most important part of my day-to-day -day of anything is creating opportunities to play in front of people. In my case, it's preparing for our tour or whatever, preparing to do events or whatever. It never ends. It is your responsibility to create. You, No one else is going to do it for you. Managers are not going to do it for you. No one's going to do it for you. You, yourself, have to. You must. Because otherwise you'll never, ever move past stage one. 
You must create opportunities to play in front of anybody. It doesn't matter. It could be your sister. It could be your family. It could be the block. It could be the street. It could be in front of this building right here. It could be gigs at the American Legion Hall for your band or you by yourself or you with another instrumental player. It could be working at a studio playing sessions. It could be anything where you're playing your guitar in front of other people. This is by far the most effort-taking thing that you must, must know. Playing in front of other people is the goal. Like, practicing in your room is really almost purposeless. You guys are in this school. You're playing all day long. You've got enough practice. If there's something you need to work on for an audition or for a purpose, then you go home and work on that shit like crazy. But if you're just noodling around, no. That energy needs to go to creating events for you to play in front of people. And internet, yes, no, maybe. I'm talking about real live in front of people. You know, I, I, the jury is really out on whether making YouTube videos and putting them up for people to watch you playing in your room, the jury is out on whether that is really going to give you any benefits or not. I, I would say it's okay, but I would say the most important thing, I said this five times, I repeat myself, you must create opportunities to play in front of other people, two people, five people, 5,000 people, 50,000 people. That is the ultimate goal, and you can ask any instructors here, any musicians that you meet who are on the road, any people, clinic people, anybody. That's it. I mean, let's put it this way. I got an offer to play here. I could have spent the whole day sleeping, and that would have been nice because I'm jet-lagged as fuck, but I'm so wired to creating opportunities to play in front of people that it was like, oh, it's a no-brainer, Somebody's going to be here. I'm going to play. So that mentality, the sooner you get that into your mind, the sooner not only will you be more confident as a player, but you'll start to see the same priorities that people at the top level are thinking about. That's what they're thinking about, you know. They're thinking about what's our next strategic move, where are we going to play next, who are we going to play for, what the purpose we're going to play for, in this school, you're going to learn enough about the inner details of your instrument and all that. But even if you've just been playing a couple months, you can start playing in front of people and getting this thing going. So I think, to me, that's the most important thing that I've said today, is that's the main thing. And hopefully, you know, I'll come back next time and someone who is here will say, you know, I really did that and, and um, I met a lot of new people and I played in front of people and I got feedback. Playing in front of people and getting feedback, man, you can't buy that. I mean, you can't buy that kind of value, you know. And the, what's on the internet is pretty meaningless, you know. You should never read that stuff anyway, because if, if you play something and it's on the internet and somebody compliments it, you're just going to get a big head. And if someone, like, says it sucks, you're just going to feel depressed. So neither of those things really have anything to do with your music. But when you play in front of a person and you see a reaction, they're bored and they leave, or they're really watching you, or they're close their eyes and listening, or they're making noise. Those reactions are so valuable. And the only way you can really develop your artistness or musicianness, if there was such a word, is to pile up these experiences where you're gauging what people are doing when they're watching your music. So play in front of people. Thank you very much. Yeah. Who knew that he was so long-winded? So maybe I'll take one last question and then I'll play one last song. Somebody who hasn't asked her if there's a burning question that... Oh, we got to go with your question. What was the first song you've ever played? Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't ask me to play it. Play it? <laughs> Eight-year-old kid asked me the hardest question of the night. Six-year-old. What's that? I'm a six-year-old. He's an eight-year-old. Even worse. Um, it, I'm sure it was something off Kiss Alive. 
you know, something off Kiss Alive. I copied Kiss Alive like it was nobody's business. That's all I did. Every day, every single note, every detail, and played the whole thing straight through to get stamina, you know what I mean? I didn't bug out on really getting it perfect. I just wanted to play it straight through. That's a good question. I'm sorry I gave you a bullshit answer. And I shouldn't say that word. <laughs> keep forgetting. It's terrible. But I'm just so, so extremely excited that people your age even care about music. So many kids are into other things, and, and it's very encouraging. Very encouraging. And, and play music now, because by the time you're 14, there's going to be like, Oh, everybody's just going to be watching eight-year-olds. You know, it's getting younger and younger and younger. So start now. <laughs> start playing now. You know what I mean? What's that? You can play Metallica. Sad but true. Sad but true. That is sad but true. It's sad for us because when I was six years old, I couldn't hold a guitar. So I think it's really, really a cool, fantastic thing. And you have good taste in music. All right, so I'm going to play one more song. And uh, thank you all so much for your questions.